In the year 2080, I imagine my nephew Javian walking home from teaching. He's a professor now, and he's just looking up as he walks home, looking at the zipping cars and the zipping trains right above each other. And he's looking for the sun. He's looking to be sun-kissed. He's also thinking about his students who now have the ability to not just have access to the world's information, but to be in tune with ancestral pasts. And his task as a professor is to awaken a curiosity in them so that they can use the wisdom of the past to continuously forge a new forward for a new future for the human present. You see, he sees himself as an instigator of human curiosity. And he has an opportunity to teach the next generation to be different, to have a grander vision of who and what they can be. Introductions are interesting to me. Where do you begin? Santiago, Monte Adentro, my grandfather's house. I remember visiting every summer from the ages of 10 to about 17. His name was Angel Acosta. I get my name from him. He and my, my grandmother, Dolores Acosta, had 11 children, and those 11 children bore 30 children. I'm one of the 30 or so grandchildren. I, I, I can think of no other time in my life where I had uh, experienced so much peace. Um, there was something so healing about walking on that land. Uh, my grandfather um, was a tobacco farmer um, and a, what you could call a, a sharecropper. He would tend to many lands. And uh, that land of his uh, was located, um, nestled right um, almost in, in, in the corner of a, of a road, um, but it was nestled deep enough that you had a little bit of privacy. So when you entered the, you know, you could call it a little bit of a small estate uh, or kind of a farm, you would have this huge mango tree uh, towering above um, just the other smaller trees, the palm trees, the tamarind trees and the coconut trees and it was just magical to be able to be so close to rural life. We were raised in New York City, so being able to spend the summers in a more remote space um, and place was just a gift. It was a true gift. Um, I think I, I'm, my relationship to nature was deep, deeply fostered there. My relationship to the skies as well. I remember watching my first shooting star um, as I walked back to the house with my cousin and I'm making a wish and taking that wish so seriously for me I, and my family was uh, constellated by all kinds of uh, skin textures and hair textures and so it was good as a young boy uh, of color to within a family that was already fairly uh, diverse to see pe more people who look like me and uh, just to live and see and be with my father's family, um, all of whom are a little darker in complexion. It just felt so much as though I had arrived, as though I was home and walking barefoot on the land. 
you know, picking up a mango and just eating a fresh mango. And I just deeply appreciate the gift um, of having that opportunity. One question that helps me to introduce uh, myself is what is emerging? And I think the, the notion of emergence has been a staple and a consistent motif in my life. When I was younger, you know, especially in high school and even in college, I, would, I had no clue what I was going to become or be or the job I was going to take. In fact, I was um, just following a series of emergence, of emergent uh, phenomena. You know, I remember loving anthropology and being just profoundly influenced by a course that I was taking my freshman year and that was emerging and I, I decided to study anthropology. I studied abroad in different countries in Senegal and the Czech Republic and Mexico. Just really, really leaned into that of just pursuing what was most present um, in my heart. certainly admit that the times are dark, um, but I'm incredibly optimistic about the future. And not a kind of divorced idealistic optimism though, more grounded, realistic one. It made me think of the work of Bayo Komolafe when he talks about going into the cracks going into the places where we tend not to see the shadow and it is there, the void, the confusion that erupts from being in a liminal place like the edge, like the cracks, that creates the exact fertile soil for surprise, for possibilities, for potentialities. Obviously we have the challenges before us and one that's kind of grounded in a sense of not faith in time, but faith in relationships. That somehow we will continue to relate to each other in ways that even through conflict and even through turmoil, even through catastrophe, will allow us to step closer to each other. And in so doing, imperfectly, we will have a future. We will have a future indeed. I mean, we are a curious species, of course, but uh, a creative one at that, a precocious one at that, thinking beyond the present challenges and the more aligned community that we can be. Ooh, I get excited about that. Obviously, we're going to be challenged with dealing with climate change, structural inequality, obviously gender disparity and wealth distribution and wealth gap and supporting countries that have experienced a legacy of colonization. And the signs point to just difficult times ahead um, in terms of maybe global consensus, you could say. We might need to plan for having our hearts broken open with the surprise 
that even at the final hour, we might just get it together. That makes me optimistic. It was 2008 during the market crash, so I, I was kind of afraid of the job market. So I, I stayed in school and I dove into leadership, dove into understanding how different theories of leadership, different approaches to leadership. And I learned so much. When I kind of finished that, I what emerged was uh, another an opportunity, an opportunity to work in the field of education for a nonprofit that did work around the country, helping low-income students get access to higher education. And I spent almost eight years traveling around the country, working in New York, Florida, the Lakota Sioux Nation in Standing Rock, North Dakota. In about eight years, I probably worked and touched the lives of about 30,000 young people. And that just gave me a profound sense for the state of public education in the United States. And during that process, at the tail end of it, I, I felt like there was more. There was more that I had to do. There was more that I had to explore and had some mentors uh, invite me to consider doctoral applications. And I somewhat leaned into that, those questions around what would I study if I could go back to school one more time, one last time. I had some very particular questions. You know, I had been exposed to inequality in the ways in which public school systems across the country operate in the communities that are in those schools, especially communities of color or communities that are historically marginalized. So I wanted to think about education more broadly, kind of think about it through a sense of a perspective of wellness, maybe. I was very curious about the mindfulness movement and the many contemplative practices that are part of that wave. I also was a firm believer in social justice education and teaching our young people and people in general how to understand the structures that be and power and how it circulates, how it reinforces particular systems of oppression. So as I started my journey, I asked those quests that question and I began to think more about healing and healing-centered education because part of understanding the matrix of power and domination and all kinds of ways in which inequality, and particularly in the United States, has been entrenched, is that trauma has been so real, structural trauma, community trauma, individual trauma. So I began to read more about trauma and its impact on community, began to read more about healing and the role of healing in this moment and in the field of education as a serious subject in terms of curriculum, in terms of policy, in terms of practice. And I have a particular focus on developing teachers and educators and practitioners racial literacy development, meaning their ability to decipher, understand, unpack, and address issues of race and racism in their communities, in their schools, in their neighborhoods. And throughout that process, I've just become a more robust thinker. You know, I've continued to expand my horizons in terms of the work that I do, facilitating restorative circles for organizations, uh, facilitating and designing learning experiences for for institutions that want to go deeper in terms of understanding these issues and particularly creating the climate at work or the climate in the, their organizational settings to have these kind of difficult conversations, especially during a time like ours. In my hand, I'm holding a ring. 
this ring is incredibly beautiful. It has all kinds of stones. In fact, the stone that it's made out of is a fire opal. So it's like a red, shimmery, almost coral in nature. And it was made by a third generation Navajo jeweler, Fernando Benali. And this ring, he made it with the four directions in mind. I believe the north uh, represented strength. I believe the east represented balance. I believe the west represented harmony and self-protection. Makes me feel centered with a readiness to take on whatever comes. It represents for me an opportunity to support an artist, an opportunity to have a relationship with a family, uh, a family of people who have carried the jewelry making tradition in, in their hands. It's an opportunity to marvel at the incredible art and genius of the indigenous communities of this country. It's massive. It takes up like the whole first third of my ring finger on my right hand. It's incredible. I wear it when I'm nervous or I need some energy. If the status quo is denial of the ecological imbalance that is before us, excessive consumerism, political context, if the status quo is the continuous rearing of the head of racism in the face of people who are continuously vilified, then I just don't connect to, relate, agree with the status quo. And it's unfair to say that mainstream America, in this case the U.S., is um, complicit in all of that. But there's something to the status quo that invites us to think that either folks think that's okay, or folks think it's okay to ignore, or folks think it's okay to deny. We are undergoing many, 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 many changes, many crises, including the pandemic, which has impacted my ability to even record these recordings. I don't identify beyond the fact that I'm in relationship to people who might be part of the status quo. And, uh, it, you know, we're living in a time where we must be in relationship with, with each other in order to face what's before us. And I remember feeling a moment of considering other ways of doing and living. One of the first times I probably felt that was that trip um, I was on studying abroad in Senegal, actually. I was 19 years old and I was studying anthropology in local communities there. And I, we went to the rural, the rural villages in the region of Kedugu. And we spent a week and a half there visiting communities that were isolated, had no running water, no electricity. I remember going down to the Bedik people, Bedik people in Medina Kota, and being blown away by a different sense of pace, a different sense of life, uh, more immediate. Of course, um, 
they they worked hard and were but were so in tune with the rhythm of nature were so in tune with their livelihoods and moving their bodies to to make ends meet in terms of tending to land tending to children tending to each other and that was a really profound moment for me to see different ways of being different ways of knowing in terms of the animism that was very present uh, in the religious and spiritual orientation of that people the relationship to trees the relationship to soil the relationship to cows the relationship to every entity in that space uh, you can sense there was a a nice uh, gentle rhythm but between the people and their surroundings and i remember vividly you know coming from the bronx coming from new york city being in rural rural senegal on top of a mountain that i had climbed 2 hours to get there and had set up a tent in a village of about 120 people surrounded by baobab trees that were 40 feet in diameter <laughs> it was profound um, it allowed me to step into the remaining years of my development with a uh, with a sense of openness and curiosity towards people who are different and people who have different perspectives and ways of being and ways of living I've experienced all kinds of love in my life. The love of my family, my god, huge family, five brothers and sisters, both my parents present, you know, almost a good 12 cousins, 12 nephews and nieces, and an extended family there goes beyond that and beyond kin. So, I very much vividly feel like I was raised by the village. and that um communal love infused me with a particular kind of ethic and orientation when it comes to being of service and just being present to the community's needs at least the family needs and of course love from friends love from romantic partners i uh feel blessed humble that i was that I have been able to experience all kinds of different uh, loves and love and it really has thinking about it now it, it definitely has shaped and fallen my sense of trust in people even though boundaries need to be set and and past partner present and past partners but my my willingness to to believe in humanity maybe is connected to just the overwhelming love I experienced through family friends and I think think all those kinds of love are incredibly important when we're going through such a turbulent turbulent time in our society at at this time it can feel it can feel very disorienting to just see such gargantuan changes happen every single week and the uncertainty of of the moment with the pandemic and the way it's disrupted our lives so there's something about the kinds of love that we ex- we've experienced in the totality of that experience and the kind of groundedness that we experience in the face of uncertainty so there's something about the profound love that creates a fortitude of sorts a fortification I just waited for my wife to stop walking. 
um, upstairs, but, um, you know, it's such a special thing to behold and to witness the unconditional love from an intimate uh, partner. You know, I'm just so grateful for having a partner in life uh, to get through not just a pandemic, but through the ups and downs of, of life, you know. What I gravitate towards is also passion and purposeful, being purposeful, feeling purposeful, full of purpose, connected and in relationship with others. So I would say a com combination of purposefulness, you know, passion, and a sense of uh, tenderness, maybe in the context of relationships. Those really steer my course. And, and my choices and at work, in my life. There's something about those emotions that help with just trying to stay sane. I think there are many emotions that drive people, that drive people to change or drive change. You know, sometimes inspiration and uh, motivation. Those emotions of being inspired and motivated they can push people to engage in the process of change. You know, sometimes shame and guilt move people to change. And I think sometimes their lack of certain emotions also might drive change as well, or a lack of change. So for example, hate oftentimes drives a lack of change. People stuck in old paradigms, dysfunctional points of views in terms of how they shape, how they see people who are different, not just in terms of culture, but also in terms of sexual orientation or class or immigration status. So on the one hand, hate and selfishness, putting oneself constantly before the other. And that may be also connected to individualism and the selfishness that's oftentimes individualism breeds which creates some difficulty when trying to make uh, collectivist decisions or decisions that will impact the whole, either the community or the collective as a nation or a country. Whether they're meditation, whether they're um, mindfulness-based, finding time in the day to pause, to sit, to presence, silence. No, it's hard. I struggle with it too. But really finding practices that allow you to come back to your body. Those are some of the best practices that we can engage in now to stay centered in the face of the uncertainty that's before us. I'm waiting for more relationships. I'm waiting for more collaborations. I'm waiting for more rest. I'm waiting for more time, more time to play, more time to be creative. I'm waiting for more peace, a shared sense of peace. It is right, I think, where there is a moment of letting go and of moment, a moment of letting in created the uncertainty 
that comes with moving beyond the old paradigm. It is in that space we we might be jolted into transformation, into creating the world anew. In this moment, I would invite people who are scared to let go, who are scared to move beyond the old paradigms, beyond old ways of thinking that created a narrowing of understanding. I would invite them to reflect on their attachment to those paradigms, to those ways of seeing, and to re-examine where there can be some space, some letting go, some detachment, some relaxation into a process of change. For true transformation to happen, the will has to be involved. So even in the difficulty of the change, there has to be a decision to change, a decision to be different, to become something else. And in that process of becoming something else, you have to leave certain things behind. One of the first things you want to let go of is those heavier objects, those weighty thoughts that come with worry, those heavy feelings that come with trauma, leaving those behind or at least resting them aside, preserving the warmth and tender feelings that get activated from the connection to others, the sweet connection to self, the trust that comes from being nurtured, being loved, being cared for. We preserve those feelings and sentiments in order to trust more and more in the face of having our hearts broken again and again. I personally am prepared to show up as present as possible in my teaching, in my parenting, in my loving, in my being. Just being more present and responsive and gentle. 